fake, fake, fakety fake. If you listened to the first episode, Caitlin and I went a bit long, so we decided to cut the episode in half. This episode will begin with a clip by Ezra Levant, and then we will get back to the topic at hand, which happens to be mass immigration. As I said at the end of the last episode, we are still trying to figure this whole podcasting thing out, but if you want to pitch in monetarily, we would supremely appreciate it. You can support us at patreon.com slash imperialnews. You can find us on Twitter at imperialnews with a Z, and that is imperialnews, N-E-W-Z, get it? Uh, we have set up a Facebook group and you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. Ahmed Hassan himself is a Muslim refugee from Somalia and he has announced plans that he will bring in more than 1 million more migrants to Canada in the next three years, 40% of whom are uneconomic. They're either old and sick or illiterate or refugees or in some other category. Look, you have this this immigrant refugee who's now creating a policy that's going to let a million people in. Yeah. Right? Now, he does frame it accurately here, which it is going to be a policy that happens uh, over three years. So a million people over the next three years. This actually isn't too much of a uh, uh, an increase no. o- over the long yeah, run. Right. This is actually a consistent thing that's happened. Uh and when you track the numbers, it's, it's really interesting that when you measure it in terms of percentage of population, immigration has not increased. Okay. So if you measure, uh, so this is how big the population is, and this is how higher immigration is, and say it represents roughly 0.5% of the population that we immigrate yeah. into our country every year. That number has remained consistent. So as our population grows from both immigration, but all, or well, people who have immigrated and then become citizens, but also people who are born through nor- normal Canadian fucking. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that percentage of population uh, that we immigrate in remains consistent. It's never increased or dig. Well, like it varies like slightly, but it's roughly always around the 0.5% range. Okay. However, because the population is steadily increasing every year, we allow like a bit more immigrants every year, right? So this jump to a million is actually just the the standard sort of ramping up of the number of immigrants that we let in. Just bringing them in to join our already long lineups for hospital emergency rooms, for food banks and schools. How do you feel about that? We're sometimes told that we need mass immigration to do economic work in Canada. But if you're saying right from the outset that nearly half the people you're bringing in as immigrants are not economic and never will be. Why are you lying? And, and again, this is a it's an issue of framing. The liberals have set up that we're going to accept 60% of our immigrants as an economic class. Yeah. Economic migrants. And what that means as a class is that these are people you're bringing in specifically for work-related Yeah, stuff. they're skilled immigrants. Right. The other 40% represents uh, what are called... Uh, uh, family reunification and then the other class is refugee yeah right now here's the thing ezra has framed this as the 60 percent are people who are economic and they're workers and we like that the other 40 percent are people who are going to be parasites who are a burden on our society right so some of the things a that lot he's of listed. people think that though yeah. but here's the thing is that's not how it is Right. You might be a person who got through the immigration system under family reunification and be a 20 year old engineer waiting to work. 
Right? Yeah, there's it could nothing be like about a sign of someone that's yeah. Right. So that's just the reason you like the method it's by which you immigrate. Because they assume they're bringing their parents over who are already old and retired, and then they're soaking up our social yeah. <laughs> benefits and pension and stuff. But right, they, I don't think they understand even how those no, systems work. But I have to say the problem is, and this happens all the time, is you're using immigrants as a scapegoat for the actual issues. Like he he is naming very relevant issues in the Canadian society. We do have long lineups for healthcare. Our healthcare system is imperfect. It's better than the states, but that's a small uh, bar to jump. And and so we do have um, not great healthcare. We our healthcare system does need a lot more perfecting and fine tuning. And there's and there's reasons for that, which is that, that has nothing to do with immigration though. We had we had ten years of a conservative party that defunded our healthcare industry. Yeah. And even locally in our provinces, we had conservative governments that defunded the healthcare industry. Exactly. Or so, came up with unlogical, um, not evidence based policies that they just thought would be better because it was more fiscally conservative. Um, he's even mentioning things like pension benefits. And I mean, again, that system doesn't work anymore. You People are living longer than they ever have before. We don't know when people are going to die and when they're going to run out of money. Right. And then on top of it, it worked when there's people having tons of kids. We don't have tons of kids now that are going to help fund um, every retired person's income and therefore more older people are working. And so I just think. And that's and that's the justification that Hussein gives and the liberal government yes. for making the economic class 60 percent. So that you bring people in who can work in nursing homes and stuff like this to take care of our growing elderly population. Sure. That's that's the justification yeah. that they're using. And and Ezra seems to think that, okay, so say you have the 60% coming in that are this economic class, that somehow this extra 40% is like going to add that stress, but we're still creating a net economic class in that sense, right? So even by his like sort of rationale, it doesn't make sense. But then the further point is like, He's under the assumption that these people are somehow going to be a drag on society, that it's going to create a system that's already crowded. But say even if we had like a legitimate or even with our un, our, our, our uh, problematic system that you described, right? Mm-hmm. These immigrants are not going to necessarily create the kind of stress that he's talking about because they're going to be paying taxes. They're going to You're be right. producing. So, so yeah. here's the thing. It's like, we're still going to have an imperfect system, but we're going to have that additional tax money that'll pay for additional service staff that are then going to staff those new people in our country. Yeah. So to claim that somehow increasing the number of taxpayers in our country is somehow going to put a burden on our, our system just makes no sense whatsoever. Just no, nobody thinks that makes sense except for conservatives that want to fearmonger about immigrations coming in, immigrants coming into this country. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. And I think this happens, though, all the time with conservatives. It's like, the thing is, liberals and conservatives are dealing with the exact same issues, but the difference are not liberals, uh, left more leftist, more right wing. I'd like to term it as that. That's better. Um, We're dealing with the exact same issues. We're just going different ways or different approaches to seeing the issue. It's like, I'm going to blame a certain group of people for all the issues where we're going to, as leftists, uh, blame the root causes of these issues and get really down to it because it has nothing to do with immigrants. These issues existed before 
quote unquote mass immigration issues were happening. Um, So it's, again, it's just, it's not very logical and it's a way to scapegoat. It's it's fear mongering. It's fear mongering, but it's a way to also scapegoat the issues onto someone else rather than realize that you do have an imperfect social structure, which I think for a lot of people, that's very difficult to comprehend or deal with. And that's harder to accept than oh, it must be these people over here, right? And you so. can all you can already see the dog whistly part of this narrative. Yeah, right. He started off with just being like, it's just we have a problem with mass. But now it's like the problem with mass is because we're going to have these people that are going to f- parasites that are going to feed off our system. But we'll let him finish his point now. It's the mass part. The mass Anyone part. wonders why wages are depressed, why rents are high, why universities are crowded, why traffic is terrible. It's the mass part. You can't add a million... I just want to pause it. Traffic being terrible because we let no, traffic is a million terrible. people over three years. Yeah. Some Somehow that's going to cause the traffic issues. <laughs> Anyways. People that can't live in three years and expect those things not to happen. Anyone who wonders why we don't have better integration and assimilation culturally, it's the mass part. Because it's the mass part that allows enclaves where people can live as they live back in Somalia or wherever. I keep thinking of this video that Ami Horowitz did in Minnesota. But really, you could film something identical in many parts of Toronto, Montreal, too. Have you ever seen this before? So I'm not going to play the video, but it basically is just people being asked this question where they're like, what country would you rather live in, Canada or Somalia? And the people would say things like Somalia. And here's the reason why, which is so stupid about this. Refugees coming to this country, they may like Canada, but they're aware, they're aware of the fact that they grew up in Somalia. Yeah. They didn't want to leave Somalia. They left because of it turned into a war zone. There might be other reasons they want to stay in Somalia, right? So it's like for them saying they would prefer to live in Somalia would, is probably caveated by the fact of saying something like, I would prefer to live in Somalia if there wasn't a war going on there, right? Yeah. In the sense of they wouldn't have left the country if not for the fact that there was a war that happened. Well, even countries that aren't exactly war-torn, like a lot of people have those sentiments, like they come to another country and they want to, you know, like they really love their country, their culture, um, the day-to-day life of living in that country, but they are told that this is better opportunities maybe for your family. So it's not exactly like those push migration factors where you're like kind of like pushed into like becoming a refugee and having forcefully having to leave a country due to maybe like war mass poverty hunger etc etc it's more of these like you might have been well off in that country and then you were told this country is better opportunities and you're fed this your entire life and so you want to do this for your family because you want your family to have a really good successful life you want them to have better outcomes which is like you're a parent you want your kid to have the best right and so most parents do and so they come they move over and then sometimes they realize oh it's not this american dream that i was told or you know i miss the day-to-day life because i'm used to something like this so yeah i would prefer to live there but it's not good right like it's just not it's not it's not gonna help me in my future it's not gonna help my family it's not gonna help um this is the path I need to take because I need the American dream or the Canadian dream. Right. So, I mean, I mean, there's so many ways of it. Like, yeah, I can think of people being like myself. There's parts of growing up in Southern Ontario that I have a history with. 
that if I moved to another country, I could be like, you know, I, I wish I was back in Ontario because I could go to this place I used to hang out before. Yeah. And right. So it's like it's nostalgic. Like it's like, oh, I grew up here. Everything I know about the world's here or people have a hard time integrating. And so they're like, it's easier. I have my family, I have my friends. Um, Which is why, and like he says the reason what, so it literally is just him going, what country, I, I don't think it was him, it was one of his reporters, Kian Brext or, or whatever. Okay. It'd be like, what country would you prefer to live in, Canada or Somalia? And it'll be like, Somalia, what country would you rather, right? And all these people would say this other country. And for one, this is a stupid thing to do because you don't know how many people they left off the cutting room floor that might have said the opposite, right? You also but don't he, know the nuances of it. Well, you know nothing because it's just yeah. a, such a stupid fucking question. And then he goes and says that the reason why they they stay here is because they want free stuff. So they're staying here because they want free stuff, but they would prefer to be in Somalia. Which is just like, how do you get from asking some Joe on the street, where would you prefer to live, to then say the only reason they're here is because of free stuff? Again, like... So then wouldn't you say I prefer to live in Canada if that's the case? Like, that makes zero sense. No, well, nothing of that makes sense. But I mean, and again, like I, we missed. Well, we didn't miss it. But like the one thing that he says here that's actually really uh, exposes the dog whistle is now he's getting into culture that they create these cultural enclaves. They come here, and because of the mass, if they only came here in like dribbles rather than a mass, somehow they wouldn't form enclaves. But because they come here on mass, they create enclaves, and none of that is true. Uh, our system is set up where we have. And there's criticism here, so I don't want to say that this is the perfect model yeah. either. But we have ways of integrating immigrants into Canadian society. And there's laws in place that sort of facilitate that process. So it's not simply we bring them over here and we put them all like in this one section and they stay in an enclave. Now, some enclave... well. I don't even like the term enclave because that seems loaded and dog whistly. But you have a lot of people with shared relationships from back home or shared cultures that might say live near each other and attend the same mosque or, or participate in the same cultures. So there is, and I'll get the actual title and author of it for the next time we record, because I can't remember at this moment, but there is this one article that outlines um, the Canadian history of immigration policy, as well as like how, like you do have certain ethnic racial categories that are immigrating into Canada at certain points of times, but that a lot of it is because of the social, you know, like the, the social outcomes in their, their country so that they need to leave. Um, so like at one point in Canada, you had mass immigration of people from Poland and there is like, he does have some, that's me. Yeah. Or Italians <laughs> well, me, in the 1950s relatives. and yeah. 1960s after world war two and that breakdown of the, you know, fascist Italy, a lot of them came over um, because it wasn't doing so hot, right? And so that's why they came over. And I mean, they did struggle with assimilation because it was this mass group of people coming over that were so ethnically different from the Canadian culture. Um, and so what they tend to do because they're not accepted is they create their own little towns where they do have their own little markets that give them a sense of home, where they do have their places of worship, where they do have their schools that have maybe Italian names to them. And we're seeing that with other ethnic populations. But I think the biggest difference than it was before is because of the skin tone. Yeah. Because they're not white. They don't blend in as much. Uh, they have but odd sounding names. There still was tensions. 
It caused it what? There still was. I mean, like even though the Polish are have more like lighter skin tones, there was still prejudice against. Or you hear the name, right? You hear that that Polish sounding name when you introduce yourself, and there was assumptions about what you were like. And like Polish people, I always hear the stereotypes like. Oh, they're We're poor. <laughs> what? Stupid is the stupid, big one. Yeah, yeah. Poor stupid laborers. Yeah, yeah. That's what I've always heard from people, which is awful. But, but um, the, like it makes. But sorry. Yeah, yeah. Finish. It just makes sense to me that people would do that because if I came to a country where I didn't know people and I felt uncomfortable and maybe my English or whatever that language is in that country is not perfected. Um, and I feel uncomfortable and people don't accept me. And maybe when people hear my last name, even if I don't have the physical signifiers of a different ethnicity or race, they're going to judge me because they hear my last name or an accent. Of course, I'm going to go to a community where I feel safe, where I feel like I'm going to have the social connections that are going to help me out, where I'm going to have the cultural capital. That's language going, resources. Yeah, the language resources, the cultural understanding and nuances that I just don't get maybe in Canada, but I get in that ethnic enclave. So to me, that's just ridiculous because we do it here even as not immigrants. Growing up, you find those people that are going to give you the social networks for better jobs better outcomes in life. You're going to learn the cultural nuances that are going to get you further or the cultural nuances of the groups you hang out with that you want to thrive in. And so when people start saying all these things like they don't blend in, they don't want to mesh, it just angers me because of course that's going to happen. It happens even with non-immigrants. And we were touching on this before we recorded today, which was that, so my son is starting, he's having his first day of school tomorrow, kindergarten. And the school that he's attending is a very diverse school with a large immigrant uh, population. And English as a second language is like huge in the school. And like I was reflecting on the fact that it was interesting seeing the parents that were sitting there and the different cultural backgrounds that they have and how they behaved and knowing that these kids being in this school surrounded by a diverse group of people were going to turn out different than those parents did, right? Yeah. Or... or start engaging more with the greater Canadian culture, which is some degree of a melting pot in the, in the I guess, American parlance of what they talk okay. about their own culture. Yeah. But the th- interesting, and this reflects my own sort of like familial background, which is that my great uh, grandparents moved on my dad's side, moved from Poland to Saskatchewan, where there was a large Polish community. And my grandpa was born in Saskatchewan, born and raised in this Polish community. So we have my great-grandparents who were born in Poland, moved to Canada, had uh, my grandpa. And my grandpa, even to, uh, he's still alive now, although might not be for long. (laughs) It's pretty dark. Whoa. He's 89. He's getting really old and he's gone through some stuff. So, But he still has uh, an accent. Even though he's he's not from Poland, never went to Poland. Yeah. And yet my dad doesn't. So my grandpa moved from Saskatchewan to Ontario and uh, then got married here and had kids yeah. here. And so my dad grew up outside of the enclave and with other people. And then now you have me and what I'm like, he married, my dad married my mom who has more of like an English background. And so I'm more of like a mutt figure <laughs> in that in that cultural context. But like now, like I don't I don't have uh, 
and I think that there's a similar story with you. Like, you don't have, like, the specific cultural roots. You can take, like, you're now, like, this mix of yeah. a kind of Canadian thing. Yeah. So I'll give some background. So my father's from Italy, but he moved to Canada um, mm-hmm. at a very young age. And so he's already pretty assimilated. Like, I make fun of him. We call him a munja cake <laughs> half the time because he acts like one. Um, but she'd probably get insulted if he heard this. But whatever. <laughs> uh, Hi, Caitlin's dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, like, he doesn't... He likes very Canadian things, like stereotypes of ca- Canadians. Like, he loves hockey, and he wants to be a hockey player when he, he grew up. He eats a poutine with specific purpose. He doesn't like pasta. <laughs> like, it's just really odd. And there's no way that I'm, like, you know, Italian integrated into the culture. Because he's not even... Because he grew up, you know, uh, meeting other Canadians. I mean, most of his fa- his friends are Italian heritage or from Italy themselves. But he, you know, associated with other Canadians. He grew up and kind of went through the Canadian education system. He went to like grade nine. So um, he, you know, uh, you, you eventually kind of do assimilate over time. Uh, and you mix those cultures and those different and like there's certain things that I noticed especially when I came to university because I grew up in like neighborhoods that had a lot of Italian kids in it and I had a lot of Italian friends or friends that had Italian heritage and so you kind of move away from it and you kind of realize oh yeah people don't do those behaviors and I didn't understand why they don't do those behaviors because to me that's just normal um but it, it's because they didn't grow up like how I grew up. And my grandparents immigrated over here. And that's another thing to say, too, is like my grandparents worked in Canada for a very long time. And they really did contribute. They're not just these old people that sucked like a punch in out of the, the government. <laughs> well, I, don't, just, I, I think that's just a, a stereotype. It's such a music, bad I don't know stereotype. anybody like I've never met even a. Uh, a Middle Eastern or Arabic no. immigrant that somehow sucks off the system. And a lot of old people go to work because they can't afford to live too. So like, cause, cause we have a horrible pension system to be honest. Um, but they still have an accent. They've been here for a long time. They barely speak English. And so I don't know. Like I just, it's. And the, and the thing is you make too, like I, yeah. my wife works for a, a company that places jobs. Uh, I won't go into too specific to t- details to out where she works but you get a lot of immigrant people going through there getting jobs so it's like it's not and and the impediments that they might have are employers that are specifically racist that don't want to hire brown people right yeah absolutely. and that's a problem right yeah. it's not them themselves being somehow lazy or not willing to work or trying to be a parasite but that they might be excluded from some positions because of racist uh employers but it's just horrible stereotypes about groups of people and there's there's a study like this is another thing is i i don't know the study off the top of my head but i have looked at information showing that basically first generation immigrants do share a lot of the culture uh that they came from but as the generations go on and usually by the time at least when the third generation comes they've uh, reverted to the norm of uh, or the whatever culture they've immigrated into's uh, sort of norm of society, right? So just like in my history and somewhat in your history, like we're second, third generations into Canada, yeah. that we become the norm, 
right? Yeah. So we're now just as likely as the average Canadian to commit crimes or just, <laughs> right? So, cause like, and the reason why I looked at this information like years ago, which is why I remember it, was that a lot of people complain that somehow immigrants are more likely to commit crimes, but that actually isn't true. First generation immigrants are actually less likely to commit crimes. And most likely the reason for that is, is they wanna be on their best behavior, Yeah. right? And so they're going to avoid being deported and going back where as you go into further generations, you now approach the norm of Canadian society. So second or third generation uh, people from immigrant families are now just as likely as the rest of Canada to start committing crimes and other things because you're now no longer uh, uh, thinking that you must be on your sort of like best behavior or putting up yeah. uh, appearances. And so the interesting thing uh, now getting back to Ezra, <laughs> that was a long, I think it was a good discussion, but yeah, yeah, long, yeah. yeah. Uh, he starts talking about this Angus Reed poll that shows that 49% of Canadians want a decrease in immigration. And he frames this in terms of, uh, you can see that people don't want immigrants or, or an increase of, of immigration. So we don't want this massive immigration. And as I argued, the liberal pro policy, I don't think is an increase in immigration. If you base it on percentage of population, it's remained consistent the whole mm -hmm. way through. So I don't think this is an increase, but people seem to want to decrease. And even those numbers, because I, I looked at how consistent they are, about 50% of the population always wants a decrease in immigration. Okay. Now, what does that mean? I don't, <laughs> maybe that just means that a large racist? part of... yeah. Or a large part of any population is racist. You perceive yeah. like anyone coming in is somehow negative and an outsider, even though most of us in Can in Canada are themselves immigrants by some generational standard, unless you're native. But even the natives, I mean, they came in 10,000, 20,000 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but either way, there's this I idea that somehow uh, Canadians don't want immigration or don't want an uh don't want an increase in immigration. In fact, the polls show, I said this earlier, that only 6% actually want an increase in immigration. And something like 31% want the levels to stay the same. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's not too surprising. But he's pitching this as this idea that Canada, Canadians mostly want a decrease in immigration. And that's partly true. And it actually has increased slightly in the past four years. And the thinking is is this is the result of anti-immigration sentiment that's being pushed by the far right that has yeah. accounted for these numbers to slightly increase. And that's worrying, and it's partly why we want to do this show and do this debunk, because there is a lot of bad information going out about immigration. Yeah, it is creating people uh, becoming more polarized against this issue, and Donald Trump doesn't help with that, and Ezra Levant doesn't help with that. Actually, this just reminds me of um, we had a free speech kind of round table at our university, which is Western University. <laughs> um, located in a, London, I want to be able to say Merry Christmas yeah. again. Um, <laughs> so we were talking about free speech. Um, this was in lieu of Doug Ford mandating universities to draft a freedom of speech mandate or policy. Sorry. Um, that followed a certain guideline and formula. And so they decided our school to have a lot of con consultation with the student body and anyone can show up to these roundtables and vocalize concerns that they have, things they would like to see included, etc. So it was a little more 
bottom up rather than top down of approach since this was causing a huge fuss and concern. And so I attended one of these and this one girl came and said, and before she even started speaking, kind of broke out in a nervous rash because she was really, you could tell she was, <laughs> she was getting concerned that she I'm was around getting, the leftists. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think what ended up happening was she knew she was going to say something that wasn't a popular opinion and she knew she was going to get criticized for it. And I think she was getting nervous because, um, cause us PC leftists are against free speech. Well, it's not even that I, I was already being quite antagonistic from yeah. the get go of this free speech debacle. Um, but what started the conversation was these two men in I think some science, some sort of science program. Cause they were explaining to us, that there is only two genders and you can't you can't like deny the science behind it's biology. That. it's biology that's what they're basically arguing and one of the professors that was sitting there was like it's a lot more complex than that i think you need to do more reading and um <laughs> they basically we were I, i'm a teaching assistant at western and they were basically saying like, oh, well, I get failed for saying something that's like racist, sexist, etc. even though I find an academic source. And I was like, you need to be critical of your sources. So you can't just say something without making sure you're sort like, I don't want to see something from Wikipedia. I don't want to see something from like some new site. It needs to be an academic resource and it needs to be recent. So if you're getting something from the 1500s, that's not sufficient enough because it's outdated evidence unless if you can find another study that supports that and i think you'd be tough out of luck to find what you're saying that's supported in current literature and so they looked a little upset by that but that girl it gave the girl motive and the momentum to say well i just want to come here because i feel like my culture is under attack and i thought maybe she was from some sort of other you know, like white passing that could have been from like an, or like maybe she's Jewish or maybe yeah. she's like from some other minority religion or ethnic group. What they call non-visible minorities. Yeah. Or? Yeah. Like, yeah. So, uh, or like white passing for something. Uh, but no, it was strictly just like, she was afraid of people coming over and preventing her from saying Merry Christmas. <laughs> It was the same person. Yeah. And she said, so yeah, she's gotten really upset and was basically saying like, I just want to say Merry Christmas without someone criticizing me. And so clearly this girl had this one encounter with someone who probably said it's happy holidays, not Christmas, who I don't know. Right. And now she's being oppressed. And now she feels like <laughs> she's being silenced and need to come and say that. And to me, that's the most ridiculous thing because we hear a lot of these like unscientific, un inaccurate statistics and scientific evidence. I do that in air quotes as well. Um, and then people will come up with their own conclusions from that evidence that is extremely far from the truth. So maybe she worked somewhere. So this was a thing in retail I noticed a lot was I was told by my boss, say happy holidays, not everyone says Merry Christmas, and you want to appease the customer. And so I was always told if I accidentally said Merry Christmas, please say happy holidays. But that's just a cordial thing because there's other religions that one are not immigrants that don't celebrate Christmas. So it was just the ridiculous. It's just, yeah, it's just, I can see in that context, maybe a manager, a boss 
being like, happy holidays, not Merry Christmas. And her being like, my voice is oppressed. Or maybe someone, a friend of her saying, hey, I don't celebrate Christmas, but thanks anyways. And her being like freaking out because that's, that's what I'm seeing. And if someone made a huge ordeal of her saying Merry Christmas when she was trying to be polite, it's probably just an asshole. So, yeah. and now she's accounting that. And then she's probably seeing these stats and now coming up to this conclusion that there's a problem here with all these immigrants coming in and making me not say Merry Christmas. They're oppressing my voice. This is a point I made on Twitter the other day, which is like all these people who freak out about this are covering up for their own shitty behavior. So it's like, all you had to do was just be nice about it. Like, I'm like, just say happy holidays. Don't be a dick, right? But they're the ones reacting like, I'm being oppressed and everyone wants to cancel me. And they're just like being so mean. And I hate yeah. that. Like, Dave Chappelle is the big one right now. So oh, my did, God. Yeah, I know. It's, it's like Twitter's like gone absolutely nuts about it. And the thing that annoys me is you have all these right wing personalities being like, cancel, cul cancel culture is bad because like it's uh, censoring people and we should let Dave Chappelle go on stage and say a bunch of transphobic shit and just not be called out on it. It's like sexist BS. And, and the thing that annoys me about this, and the reason why I want to bring it up, even though it's slightly unrelated, although Ezra gets on these talking points all the oh, time, no. which is that Dave Chappelle left his show because he was worried about how his jokes were being interpreted by the audience. And many people forget about that because that was back in, I think, 2006. So he had his uh, Dave Chappelle show. And what he said, so he left his $50, $50 million contract and fled to Africa. And it became this huge thing. I don't know if you're aware yeah. of this, right? Yeah, it's a huge, big deal. And then he basically went on Oprah and had like Oprah Fest <laughs> to explain himself yeah. why he left and all this. And he said that when he was filming one of his episodes, there was an episode that had to do with this kind of like race fairy or something like this. So it was like, it's kind of like when you have an angel and a devil on your shoulder, but it was like your inner racist or whatever. And they had the person go in blackface. And the thing is he saw it as a way. And I don't deny this of like mocking, mocking racists. But what he said was in, watching how the thing was unfolding and how they were filming and writing, somebody laughed in a way that made him uncomfortable. When he started to realize that not everyone is going to t have the same uptake as everyone else. Yeah. So even though he perceived the joke in a, uh, a way that was sort of uh, mocking racism and stuff like this, he realized that other people could uptake the joke in a way that <laughs> black people. And that's not a good way to receive the joke. No. So he had this way of reflecting on his jokes going, my jokes can have meanings for two different groups of people. And one of those ways that it's being received, I don't like. And yet that was in 2006. And now somehow in 2019, you're complaining that people are complaining about your trans jokes. Like, yeah. like that, that to me is, is the essence of it. It's like you were on the right kick in 2006 where you were really framing this in but, terms of how so, jokes are interpreted and why your jokes matter. But he also matter, you know? had um, a Netflix show, I forget the title of it, like a few years ago as well, pro probably in the same year, 2016, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, um, where he made a lot of sexist jokes and they were horrid, like just absolutely horrid. And then he would go on and say very progressive things about race. And so... That's the thing is yeah. sometimes people can be very like woke in this one 
issue and they can be very well informed they understand it and i mean he is a black man he probably understands the nuances of racism more than i probably do or definitely do um and he can speak to that and make it funny but also like dissect it in a a better way than anyone probably could that is white so um No, I'm going to agree and move on. I have so much more to say about that, but we're got to keep on time. I guess so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to move into another uh, clip. So this is, there's a lot in this clip, but we're just going to play it and see where it goes. It's not allowed in the narrative. And so when this very simple, very underproduced billboard went up, say no to mass immigration, it was a shock, not to normal Canadians who polls show think that way, but to the official keepers of the ideas, the media party. The political establishment. I should point out that it's not just the CBC and the liberals the who hated party. this billboard. Timid, half-conservatives did too. They know that mass immigration is politically deadly to conservative parties in the long run. It's, it's how the Democrats won California. It's how the Democrats will win Texas. They can't get voters to change their minds and be socialists, so they just bring in new voters from Mexico. That's the way they do it in California and Texas. The liberal plan in Canada couldn't be more explicit. I don't know if you remember our story from a couple years back. Syrian refugees to Canada literally were asked to sign. Okay, I'm going to pause here before he gets into this next point. Just to talk about this whole like timid conservative. Well, for one, calling them like half conservatives. They're not real conservatives because real conservatives will be against immigration. The other thing that annoys me about this is this assumption that immigrants vote en masse as a single block, which is not true. Uh, you get various demographics within certain yeah, immigration pop- populations, immigrant populations that have various different degrees of voting preferences. And a lot of immigrants that we get are actually conservative in a way. Uh, either they come from conservative cultures or their the religious identities make them against things like gay marriage and stuff like yeah. this. And that's complicated. I'm not saying that that is true. Again, I don't want to fall in the same trap that they're doing and say that that's true of the whole block of them. But my point is that immigrants are are diverse, just like any population is diverse. So to assume that they're going to one block and not the other is is not true and isn't fully backed up in the data. Now, there's some data that a lot of immigrants vote for liberals. And part of that could be because you actually want to see your family and other stuff immigrate with you. And so therefore, you would support a party who at least signals that they're pro-immigration. And you actually saw a shift in a lot of conservative politics to sort of signal that we're pro-immigration too. So that's why uh, you can see here that Ezra Levant does not like Andrew Scheer. Because Andrew Scheer's, and we're going to get to it, but like most of his issues with the immigration has more to do with these value questions than it does with the absolute numbers of immigrants that we're letting into this country. So the mass question doesn't bother Andrew. It's more Mm -hmm. of like... Do they believe in Sharia law or something? Like yeah, that, right? yeah. But uh, but you could see why. Uh, and and in the end of the day, like the numbers of immigrants that are coming in, they're not going to sway an election that much. That somehow the liberals need these people to come in, or else they're going to start losing elections or anything like that. So, anyways, I just want to raise that point. Now we'll go on to this issue with the Syrian refugees that he's going. He's so shocked about. Here it comes. Releases, photo releases on the photo releases to let Trudeau take a photo with them. That was their most important purpose to Canada. Now I don't think that the liberals had in mind that the most important part of the Syrian refugees come over was to do a photo op with them. Now 
I looked into like Rebels history because I was just like, where is this coming from? And the only people reporting on this is the Rebel, the Rebel. And the reason is is because back during the the Liberal uh, uh, campaign before they were elected into the majority government, was they were criticizing Stephen Harper for doing a photo op with uh, refugees. In particular, they had some claim that the the conservatives were going through their uh, portfolio of all these immigrants to choose specific families that highlighted conservative values so that it would make the conservatives look okay. good kind of thing, yeah. right? And so they were criticizing that. And you can maybe call it then hypocritical that then the liberals do something similar and that they do a photo op with immigrants coming over uh, from Syria, right? Now, the rebel, because they're the rebel, did a Freedom of Information Act of, of FOIA or whatever, they, so okay. they foiled the government to get emails about this and found that they found two emails in their FOIA <laughs> that show that like party staffers were like, oh, don't forget to get the Syrian refugees to sign the release on the plane in Syria before they get here, just so that we don't have to worry about them landing, filling out a form and then getting their photo taken. So because they just said, we want a photo. Make sure they sign it before they get on the plane in Syria and then come here so they're ready to take the photo. That somehow this is a huge scandal. My God. <laughs> Where it's like, whatever, take your photo. Like, I, don't, I don't think it's a scandal. I also don't care. And clearly, yeah, they're probably doing it for political gain. Yeah. They're like, look how friendly we are with yeah, immigrants. But like, I participated uh, with Andrea Horvath, who was running for the, the leader of the Ontario government. I participated in one of those photo ops things like whatever <laughs> i was used as a political tool and i don't care so whatever be campaign props for trudeau and obviously to vote for him. oh no oh. campaign props. that's why trudeau goes to all the mosques including mosques that have been associated with terrorism <gasps> and listen to how trudeau bragged a few years back about visiting listen to him say at the asuna wahhabi mosque in montreal that the pentagon says was an al-qaeda recruitment center so this is going to take a bit more breaking down, and this is really annoying. And this is what I meant by, like, I think I said this earlier, which is that they use these, like, old talking points from back in the day and just throw them out there at random. So, like, we're talking right now just, like, this whole segment is just, like, random, like, here's this, here's this, here's this. And so now we get, oh, there was this photo op with the Syrians. And now it's like, oh, uh, you got timid conservatives. And now it's, oh, uh, Trudeau went to a mosque that was on a terrorist list. Yeah. Now, so here's the details about this mosque. And, well, before I get to that, so he plays a clip and it's Trudeau going, and the conservatives are getting all mad at me because I went to the Asuna Wahhabi mosque. So he's like mocking conservatives. Yeah, yeah. And the image that Ezra wants to paint is like, how dare he mock? Because like, it was on a terror list. Like, this is really bad. And he's just mocking that he went to here. So... Here's the story of this mosque. So it's the Asuna Mosque in Montreal, and it is a Wasab, uh, Wahhabi uh, Muslim population. Uh, now, <coughs> Trudeau visited the mosque in March 2011. And in April 2011, there was leaked documents from WikiLeaks mm -hmm. showing that the Pentagon had listed this mosque as an Al-Qaeda recruitment center. Okay. So even when Trudeau visited the mosque, it was not known that this was a terrorist recruitment mosque until a month after he had visited it, right? And I say known just in the sense that these documents leaked, because as I'm going to show you, I do not think that this was a Al-Qaeda recruitment mosque, and I'll explain why. So the main link that people have is this individual name, uh, and I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Mah Mahmoudou 
Ulad Slahi. Slahi? Slahi? I don't know. I don't speak Arabic, and I apologize for this individual. So he had previously been a Mujahideen fighter against the Soviets. So in Afghanistan, uh, the U.S. government backed Mujahideen fighters to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan way back uh, in the 80s and early 90s. Now, he left that conflict, and he stayed for a bit of time in Montreal and attended this mosque, right? Now, there's no information that he, he did much more than attend, and I think he, like, helped out with some things at this mosque. Now, this individual, he's of uh, Mauritania, I think is the country he came from, which is a country in Africa. So he's a Mauritian, I think is how they, they refer to themselves. Uh, but he visited Montreal for a year at this mosque. Now, while he was at this mosque uh, in Montreal, there was this other Muslim in Montreal named Ahmed Rassam. Now, what Ahmed did was he uh, was a member of Al-Qaeda, and he plotted to bomb the Los Angeles airport in 2000. So this is before September 11th. Okay. Now, this plot failed, and a lot of the people involved were arrested. And Slahai has denied any involvement in the bomb plot. Now, what the U.S. claims is that during the year that he was in Montreal, that he somehow contacted Rassam and they they chatted. Now, there might be some evidence. Like, I can't find any evidence that he actually communicated Rassam, but the, the link there is that that's what the U.S. government thinks happened, and therefore he played some role in this international airport bombing even though Sahai has continued to deny it. And not only has he continued to deny it, the Canadian government, the German government, and the Mauritian government all investigated this, claiming that he had no involvement in the attacks. Okay. Now, it wasn't until after September 2001, when the Twin Towers uh, fell down, that the U.S. government started to go through their list of suspected terrorist suspects uh, and... Basically, it was like, we're going to recheck on these guys, right? Yeah. So they got super involved in the terrorists after September 11th for arguably, a, <laughs> you could see why they did it. Yeah. Uh, and so Sahai, who's now living back in his home country of uh, Mauritania, was then sort of like uh, investigated by the U.S. again. Okay. Now, he cooperated in that investigation. He willingly showed up and uh, helped out. And then eventually... He was taken from Mauritania and sent to Jordan in the Extraordinary Redition Program. He was then tortured by the U.S. government, sent to Guantanamo Bay. He's been in Guantanamo Bay until 2016 when he was released. In 2015, he released a book uh, that was called The Guantanamo uh, Diaries, which basically explained his torture. It became a bestseller. And he was released in 2016 when he was declared no longer a threat to the U.S. He was never tried, never found guilty of doing anything. Okay. And he was kept there and tortured. Now, he did confess under duress that he was involved in the Millennium Bombing Plot, which is the, the Los Angeles International Airport bombing. Yeah. But he has since said that the only reason I said that was because I was being tortured. So you can make it out of what you will. I happen to think that the person is innocent based on this evidence and the fact that many people investigated him beforehand found him no connection, that he didn't talk to this Rassam person. Yeah. And so this probably innocent person was sent and tortured. Yeah, that's all good. And yet, this is why uh, Ezra Levant thinks this is a terrorist mosque. Yeah. That's it. That's the sole relationship. So the fact that Justin Trudeau spent any time at this mosque 
means he's somehow associated with terrorist organizations. With, with terrorist organizations, and he's somehow pro. Like, like, look how insane that is. You, you, you just made these like that, loose. But so you just did a bunch of research, though, <laughs> that dissected all of this. But a lot of people would hear that and not do that research and be like, "Oh no. my god!" Like he visited a mosque. He must be Islamic. It, <laughs> he's a secret. <laughs> like this is the crazy thing. Like when. I visited uh, the Yellow Vest people in town who often protest outside of our city hall and talk to them. And they think that Trudeau is a secret Muslim. Which is crazy. But they do. They believe that. And it's through talking points like this. Well, because he's going to come and he's going to make Sharia law. And now you have these mass immigrants coming. Like, you can see, like, this is the... Why else would Ezra bring this up in a topic of mass immigration? No, it's true, yeah. I agree. It's because he wants to freak you out. But I'm just trying to say, if I was listening to this and I just don't have the research skills like you do or don't care (laughs) to like do the research or whatever reason I'm too busy, I wouldn't, I would be like, oh my gosh, why is he going to that mosque? Like if he wants to go to a mosque, go to a mosque, but don't go to that mosque. Right? Like I can see people. He chose the one mosque where terrorists, yeah. Yeah. So I can see where people would be like, Oh my God, why would he choose that one out of all places? There's plenty of mosques to go to, right? So, And and I'll be serious. Like, I don't think it took that hard of research to, to find out that information. But compared to other Google search, it wasn't easy. Like, I yeah. had to read article and article before. I'm like, I built a sort of like framework to go, okay, this is someone who went through shit like and but, it's, but you also have the ability to go through credible sources look up that thing yeah. a lot of people don't learn that like i can just think of so again i'm a teaching assistant i can think of a lot of my undergrads that don't know what an academic source is they don't know how to decipher 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 just got stuck <laughs> uh, between like what what is credible what's academic and what's not uh what is founded in the claims what is unfounded they don't understand that yet and they don't know why they have to do it like it takes a while for people like i can't even count the many times i've had to say in text citations people it's important for plagiarism (laughs) but they don't understand why that's the problem it's not that they disagree with me it's just i don't get why this is stupid this is extra work and it might be the same thing oh why would i go look up this when i'm busy i have kids to take care of i'm tired and i could just listen to this guy talk about it and he just told me that's the trudeau well that's my hope with this podcast is like for anyone who's because the right wing they're never going to be convinced they're like locked in yeah, okay. but anyone that's kind of like on that fence I would rather them stumble on this podcast and hear me sort of deconstruct that so that you understand that Ezra is completely full of shit. Like that's the whole point of doing this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to move on. We're going to get into uh, Ezra talking about Andrew Shear. Uh, Andrew Shear typically refuses to fight on these grounds, as I've shown you before. That was actually when Andrew Shear turned against us and against me in particular. I asked him He's some turned against questions us. about immigration five times in a row. And he just refused to answer. The interview that Ezra did with Andrew Scheer was back in uh, 2016, I think, which was after the Liberals got elected, Stephen Harper stepped down, and then they were having a leadership race within the Conservative Party. Basically the equivalent of a primary in the United States, but to choose the new leader of the opposition against the Liberal government. Uh, so that's that's 
the leadership race that was happening, and Maxime Bernier was in that race in the Conservatives against Andrew Scheer. So this is the questions that he was asking Andrew Scheer. Do you have anything to say about the Syrian migrants or about John McCallum's new numbers? Or, uh, I mean, that's something that I think conservatives, maybe it's just me, but I think a lot of conservatives want to hear something on that. Kelly just isn't talking about security. She's talking about no, values. No. What's your view on, so, on a values test? So look, well, McCallum has said he's going to jack up the numbers probably by 100,000. Do you oppose that? Are you against that? Well, Kelly Leach has said before they get here, they should be some sort of a value screening. Mm -hmm. Do you think we should ask and ask any values-laden questions of people before they get here? Well, you just tell me your answer yourself. Do you think, I mean, you're saying once people get here, integrate them, teach them. I don't think anyone disagrees. But before they even get here, should we ask them about their values? Should we ask them about Canadian values before we let them in? That was a lot of clips asking of me asking questions. Um, I encourage you to watch the whole video. We didn't show his answers because they were not answered. So I watched the interview. <laughs> And how, for one, I want to frame this as how dishonest is Ezra that he just played like a 40 second clip of all the questions he asked and not once did he play Andrew Shear's responses to yeah, those questions. True. And all that, like you can see the two points that he's ramming home on is numbers and values. And then he says that Andrew Shear did not respond to those questions regarding immigrations about numbers and values, right? So this is actually what uh, Andrew Shear responded with he said that if you refer to absolute numbers that doesn't actually make any sense because they could be like two million great people right like yeah. so when you talk about numbers what does that really mean and i kind of agree with him i in no way mean this as an endorsement no, of of course, yeah. but i was like as an answer i understand it then in terms of the value question it what he said was he agreed with Ezra on the basis of the question, which is we should be concerned with values. I don't know how much I agree with that. But then said the issue is, how do you assess that in a candidate? So he was like, what do I do? Do I give them a survey that says, like, what are your values? When you know that people can lie on that survey. So how do you assess values? Yeah. And Ezra didn't have a response to me, or a response to Andrew. But I think that's a legitimate worry about that question. And I think that's an answer to that question. How do you screen for values? There's no like real like rigorous way that you can determine for a fact that this person holds certain values. Yeah. You can maybe true. do some sort of like historical survey and be like, were they involved in certain groups or what? I mean, if you wanted to, like, I'm not saying I agree with this whatsoever, but at least in the, in the conservative framework, it's a lot better of an answer than say a Max Bur a Maxine Bernier who's just like, fuck immigration yeah, altogether, no, right? right? And so again, I don't want to be sounding like I'm supporting uh, Sheer here, but it was like, how dishonest is that? Like, he played those clips, then said uh, he didn't respond, and he clearly responded, and then expects his audience to go back to 2016 when he did this interview, because there was no link on any of the information linking me back to that thing, and I had to do a few Google searches before it came up where I oh found God. that interview and listened to it. Then the other thing is, he said that this is the reason that Andrew Sheer no longer likes him. And that is just simply not the case. The only reason Andrew Shear got rid of him, and I believe it was because of political expedience. I don't like trust Andrew on this one bit, but it was right after Charlottesville. And the reason why it was right after Charlottesville, which if 
I mean, if you're oblivious to anything, that was the time when the the neo-Nazis in the United States were marching with their tiki torches, saying the Jews will not replace us, and were mad about a Confederate statue being taken down. Yeah. And then a neo-Nazi in a car killed uh, a protester at that rally. Now, the reason why people started distancing themselves from rebel media is because of a person named Faith Goldie, who was an employee of rebel media, who went to that protest. And oddly enough, she was in the crowd when that car went through and and killed those people. And she was face, face recording herself walking through the crowd making like racist jokes and insulting people in the anti-Nazi protests. So the anti-fascists. Yeah. Mocking them for their looks, other things as the car plowed through. And then she freaks out just like everyone else did with this car plowing through. Now at that unite the right rally that she went and attended and mocked the anti-Nazi protesters. She then gave an interview with the daily stormer. Now, if you don't know what the daily stormer is, that is a, legit nazi like podcast okay legit like these people believe hitler (laughs) believe that what they're not holocaust deniers because they're pro holocaust like they're nazis she went on their podcast and mocked the fact that her boss was a jew ezra levant so she was fired from rebel media yeah and because of this uh exposure to what faith goldie did all the conservative party members jumped ship and were like, wiped their hands clean and were like, we want nothing to do with rebel media. And it's been that way ever since. Yeah. So, well, I say that, although there's some, again, incestuous relationships going on because uh, one of the people that works as uh, Andrew Shear's campaign manager uh, has also worked with rebel media. Uh, his name is Hamish. I can't remember his first name. Something Hamish? Or maybe his first name is Hamish. Either way. Okay. He he has some relationship to rebel media. So you can't say that they're complete they completely distance themselves. Yeah. But Andrew will never be interviewed by the rebel and won't uh appear with them at all. Okay. He's made that decision. And that I think is why you can tell, even though he hasn't full out come out and said, I support uh, uh Maxime Bernier, it's clear that he knows that Andrew Shear is not going to support him. And he's not going to support him because of blowback of what happened in Charlottesville. Mm, okay. Even though he's telling his audience right now that the only reason why Andrew Shear has decided not to take them seriously is because he was just too aggressive with him about the immigration issue during the uh, leadership race. At first, the billboard company, Patterson Outdoor, resisted this fake controversy, this manufactured Twitter mom. I mean... They're not a publisher. They're a billboard company. They don't write what's on their signs. They just rent space. And anyone can rent that space. In fact, their neutrality is an important part of functioning democracies. Stop mass immigration is a pretty simple idea. And I think it's the default idea. I think. I mean, shouldn't you have to make the case for mass immigration if you So there's two things going on here. One is this idea that somehow this billboard space should be for anyone. Now... I'm a leftist. Let's nationalize everything. <laughs> but for him, he's a capitalist. So if this billboard company does not want to host uh, a stop or say no to mass immigration sign, that's up to the billboard company. Unless Ezra Cl- or Ezra Levant, I'm going to do it again. Unless Ezra Levant is going to make some argument that uh, billboard companies should be forced to put up whatever messaging they want and never bow to like pressure ever, legally mandate that. And this company has ever right to go, okay, people yelled at me on Twitter. They made some good points and I'm going to pull that advertisement. 
So unless he's going to make some sort of regu- we need to regulate billboards. I think his argument though is that if you pay for it then it should be able to go up. So he'll get to this okay. issue of contract okay. and I, I didn't look at the contract but there might be a clause in it that says or maybe they were like maybe they refunded the money and they like there's some yeah. sort of like legal maneuver that they can Because I think what he's trying to get at is like Anyone should be able to post whatever they want, even if it's controversial, because that's part of freedom of speech. That's what he's that's what he's saying. That is what he's saying, and that's yeah. the part that I'm objecting to. He might have more to go on on the legal issue about the contract. And I don't know, maybe there's some clause in the contract that I'm not aware of or how the, the legal system functions with billboards. Yeah. But the point is like a billboard saying I'm not gonna host your ad or changing their mind and maybe refunding you is up to the billboard company. It's, it's not a matter of free speech. Now, the other issue is this issue of default, which is that the default position is against mass immigration. And I actually think that that's not true. The Angus Reid poll was that we want to decrease in immigration. And as I said, the numbers have been consistent. So it's not like we're increasing it. So yeah, okay. in some sense, so it's this idea that like what they're objecting to is known to mass immigration. That's not, I think, what people are objecting to. And we don't have mass immigration. So the whole thing is flawed. And so for him to call it the default position is just nonsense. You want it? Canadians have never really been asked. Patterson stood firm at first. I mean, after all, the message wasn't obscene. It wasn't illegal. It's clearly a political point of view. They were paid. Patterson can't get into the editing business on politics or on commercials. No one's asked. Look, the establishment wants something. The establishment's going to get something. And within days... Patterson bent the knee. They posted this groveling apology. Media party. Up their signed contract with the third-party group that advertised. Breach a contract out of cowardice. Whipped up by the media, especially the state broadcaster. It was journalists <laughs> who censored that billboard. Political journalists. They didn't cover the billboard, which is what a journalist would do. Report on it. They campaigned against it, which is what a good liberal would do. So the thing is, like... I read a bunch of articles and all the articles said things were like, this is the reaction the billboards are having on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So he's putting like the chicken before the egg here, which is that he assumes that it was the coverage of the billboards that created the Twitter outrage when all of the media coverage was based on the Twitter outrage. Yeah. Now he wants to claim that the Twitter outrage is somehow like not real. Right. Of course. But it's, more organic than the media reporting on how people <laughs> reacted on Twitter. And frankly, a lot of people reacted on Twitter. It was like one of the top trending yeah, yeah, topics yeah. when I woke up in the morning to see uh, Say No to Ass Man. So that's just nonsense. Lastly, so I want to get into one last clip, our final clip of the night, which is him comparing sort of Sheer versus uh, Bernier on this topic. This isn't just the deplatforming of the billboard. This isn't just the silencing of the majority view of Canadians. It's the deliberate conditioning of Canadians that you just got to shut up and withdraw from the political playing field. Get out of the public square if you don't buy into the official narrative. Andrew Scheer has agreed to buy into the official narrative on mass immigration, on the threat of global warming. Um, in the hopes that, I don't know, the, the big boys will let him play with them. They're the cool kids. Can he join? I don't think it's going to work for him, but the media probably <laughs> likes the fact that they've house-trained him on stop. global warming. He says it's so much. 
which is why the media party hates Maxime Bernier so much, an MP that they See? all used to rather like. He's so charming because... They used to like him. These days he says... I hate him. That they think you shouldn't be able to say. You can disagree with the media with party. You can disagree with Bernie. You can disagree even with the existence of the People's Party. But to silence him <gasps> and to shut down the billboard company and then to scare <laughs> the donors. Yeah, I'm sorry, that's not Canadian. At least that's not what Canadian used to mean. Our country has been destroyed. <laughs> Canadian identity is ruined because Maxine Bernier has been silenced. He wasn't silenced, though. In fact, he got so much traction for that, so... Well, not only that, he didn't pay for the signs. Some other third party paid for the signs. So it's like, he wasn't silenced. He didn't even put the billboard up. I, Some other well, person. Well, I think they did what they wanted, which was probably to get controversy and to get some sort of following out of it. And even if it was up for a short period of time, it got it got attention, so they accomplished what a billboard is for so that's the most ridiculous thing like it's not like they took it down and no one saw the billboard it's like everyone saw the billboard everyone that owns social media knows about the billboard so no, it blew exactly i mean it's i didn't ridiculous. even think about that but that is precisely right it yeah. got so much traction so many more people know about what happened yeah than would have yeah i bet most people don't even know it was taken down they just know about the billboard because it was trending so much on twitter and facebook um, and, and now the, the all vandalism the right of it was trending a lot. So and all the right wing people get to have content. I mean, he he talked about this billboard the entire week, <laughs> the entire week, which is why I, I covered this topic. So he like so it was this episode. Then there was an episode where he had uh, Candace Malcolm on, which I uh, already said uh, she was with Andrew Lawton with the True North Initiative, and they talked about immigration and again referenced the billboard. And then at the end of the week, uh. Again, this is hilarious. David Menzies, who's the Menzoid. The Menzoid. Menzoid, yeah. Uh, and I, again, we didn't uh, <laughs> we didn't release our first episode, but I'm pretty sure he committed a crime. I'm just going to throw it out there. He was harassing a, a trans activist. So there was that. I didn't clip any of it because it was just boring. But he interviewed Ezra Levant on the Rebel Media's <laughs> podcast talking about the billboard at the end of the week. So like, got to bring... And he called him the Rebel Commander, oh, which no. I thought was like, oh, God. We, uh... So that's that's basically it. That was the whole, <laughs> whole week of this stuff. I, and I want to say, so the, the episode with Candace Malcolm, just to bring it around, because we talked about this already, was about the fact that the Customs and Immigration uh, Union, which is a part of... Uh, PSAC, yep, uh, which is the union that, that we're both involved with, they released a statement saying that they're uh, understaffed and undersupplied to deal with the immigration incident that's happening in Roxham, okay, uh, in Quebec. Yep. And some of the points they raised sort of make sense. Now, I'm going to take a step back in that I'm, again, uh, relieving or releasing my political bias into the public ether. I am on the left. I have sort of views of I want less policing and like other things like this. Mm -hmm. And so there's some incidents of this where I'm like, okay, I don't necessarily agree with you, but I can see where you're coming from. Right. So I don't necessarily want an increase in funding for border security because I don't necessarily think that it's necessary. Right. Yeah. But what uh, the president of the CIU, which is again, the customs and immigration union, which is a part of PSAC, what they put out is that these immigrants that come over through Roxham, 
they all get sort of like registered into the system. But the point is they don't have the resources to track these people to make sure that they're coming back to the court hearings and stuff. Now, one thing that I do know, especially in the American system, and I believe it applies the same in the Canadian system, is that a lot of these people have incentives to go to their court cases and stuff like this. So the real issue comes in when you have an individual who committed a crime now that they're in Canada. But that's not particularly an immigrant problem, but a general problem, which is anyone who commits a crime is going to be hard to find because they're going to try to make themselves hard to find because yeah, yeah. they committed a crime, yeah. right? Uh, so they argue that they want more resources so that they can deal with these people who might go off radar for specific reasons, in particular because they commit a crime. Other people, clearly, they're applying for asylum in the country. So they're going to come to their court hearings because they want to get asylum in this country. So they're not going to disappear the way people think that they would disappear, right? Which is the whole like fear-mongering that at least Ezra, while interviewing Candace Malcolm, they, they play off this thing, which is like, oh my god, there's like, immigrants are criminals and are going to run rampage and we're not tracking them and like, this is terrifying. Yeah. Right? But really, all the union was saying is, if we want to trace these people, we don't have the resources to do, resources to do that, and we should have the resources to do that. Yeah, that's all they were saying. The other thing that's interesting about Candace Malcolm, just to like finish this up, is that she wrote a book right after Trudeau got elected, and basically the point of the book is that immigration in Canada is is going to go haywire under Trudeau and he's going to like ruin everything. So immediately he gets elected. She writes a book, creates the true North initiative, which is like wholly dedicated to immigration issues and is like mad about this. And most of the book is that we don't have in place the integration model necessary to integrate all these immigrants. When Trudeau hasn't changed anything to do with that model. If anything, he strengthened it. And that model was created a lot by conservative governments to have these programs in place to integrate uh, immigrants that come into our country. And there's probably criticisms there and all that fun stuff. But the point is, is she immediately like criticized Trudeau and criticized them, criticized them on a particular point that conservatives were already doing and that Trudeau expanded on and like yeah. grew. So her whole criticism is nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For one, it jumped the gun, and then two, was telling them to do something that they were already doing. Yeah. These are the people that yeah, Ezra yeah. Levant has on the show. Uh, and that's it. That was our, our whole episode on immigration. It was a bit long. We might split it in half. We'll figure that out. Uh, we do have a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash imperial news. I'll eventually have a Twitter. And if you want us to continue, you can donate. Uh, I, th- I said on the, again, we threw away our first episode. So this is kind of our second, even though it's our first episode. Uh, I eventually want to do, if we get enough support through Patreon and I'll set specific goals, uh, I'll go through some of the books that Ezra has written. So he wrote a book called Ethical Oil, which is ridiculous. <laughs> we won't go over it again, but we like laughed at that last time. And so that's one of the things that's probably his most popular book. And so I think if we reach a certain goal, we'll go through and I'll do a, a breakdown of that book. And yeah. there'll be other things like that that we can do in the future. One other thing is there's so many things in the past that are interesting. So Ezra has been on uh, a various human rights tribunals and stuff like this. For I think at one point he went on a tirade against gypsies and got... Oh, my God. <laughs> Ezra. Oh, my God. <laughs> so there's tons of fun stuff that we can dig into the past and find out uh, about Ezra. And also some of the other uh, co-hosts that he has on a show, like Faith Goldie, Lauren Southern... Uh, Gavin McGinnis, oh, uh, Tommy Ro- Tommy Robbins. Oh. Uh, there's so many, 
so many people who have been through Rebel Media, which is like the other important thing is like it's been a bit Canadian focused this episode, but it's definitely going to branch out because his whole uh, staff is has has infiltrated the universe of right wing politics across yep. the globe. And I almost feel responsible as a Canadian. <laughs> so many people, Jordan Peterson, have like gone out into the ether. And See, just on a things. last point, and this is what you said earlier, was why would Trump retweet him if he's so insignificant and he's clearly not insignificant? No. But, yeah. And he's not, I mean, there's a sense in which he is insignificant because they don't represent a large swath of the Canadian population. And and I don't think his followers are that huge in the grand scheme, grand scheme of things, but they do have their tendrils out there, into, <laughs> into important niches that are making important, uh, yeah, and fascistic steps around the I, world. I mean, they're commenting on large sentiments that are happening in the Canadian public in general too. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye. I don't have an outro. <laughs> <laughs> Homeless people in LA have smartphones.